This is episode number 221 with Brenda Davis. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? I just wanted to quickly remind you that if you haven't already, make sure you hit subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Mine is Himalaya. For those of you that have not heard of Himalaya, it's an epic brand new podcast app, which has so many awesome and unique features no other podcast app has, like episode and channel playlists. It's free, so easy to find new shows, and is really user-friendly. So head on over to the app or Google Play Store to download it today. Don't forget to follow me once you're done so that you can listen to my episodes one day earlier than they're usually released. Pretty cool, huh? Brenda Davis, registered dietitian, is a leader in her field and an internationally acclaimed speaker. As a prolific nutrition and health writer, she has co-authored 11 books with over 750,000 copies in print in 13 languages. That is huge. So amazing. Her most recent works include Kick Diabetes, Essential Diet and Lifestyle Guide, and Becoming Vegan, which has received a star rating by the American Library Association as the go-to books on plant-based nutrition. And it won two Book of the Year awards in the US and Canada. They are very in-depth, chunky books. And that is just such an amazing achievement. She's also co-authored several peer-reviewed journal articles. She is the lead clinical nutritional specialist for the Diabetes Intervention Project in the Marshall Islands. And recently completed a lifestyle intervention demonstration program in Lithuania. She's also a past chair of the Vegetarian Nutrition Dietetic Practice Group of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and in 2007, was inducted into the Vegetarian Hall of Fame. Wow, she has achieved a lot, hasn't she? And I'm so excited for you guys to hear this episode because we talk about a lot of the confusion around plant-based diets, and she gives us a lot of the science, which is awesome because I don't want you guys to be confused. And in this episode, we chat about her story and how she got to where she is today. We also talk about the most common diseases that she sees in her practice and how to prevent those diseases. We also talk about all the foods the centenarians in the blue zones around the world eat. This is really interesting. We also chat about whether organic animal products are better for you than non-organic, how to protect our environment and the beautiful mama earth the plant-based myths around protein. We chat about macros, chronometer, and the importance of tracking your macros, the truth about B12, why when you're over 50 years old, you shouldn't be eating animal products for your B12. This was really interesting. I didn't know this. We also chat about how much B12 you ideally need 
the importance of gut health, the truth about saturated fats, the truth about iron, how to maximize your iron absorption. This was awesome. I loved this. How to have a healthy pregnancy, so many great tips and breastfeeding tips and tricks and how to transition to eating more whole foods and more plants. We also chat about the best documentaries to educate and empower yourself and why every single human being needs to watch the best speech ever. And we'll link to that in the show notes, so don't worry. We also chat about her epic morning routine and so much more. You guys are going to love this episode. She is a wealth of knowledge. And for everything that Brenda and I mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that is over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 221. But before we dive into this epic conversation, I want to read the review of the week. And this week it comes from Jackie S. And it's a five-star review titled Divine Timing. And Jackie says, Thank you, Melissa, for your podcast. I have been deep diving into your back catalogue for teachings on Ayurveda, wellness, and bioindividuality, and your podcasts have not disappointed. I feel a large change coming in my life, and this is like a lamp lighting the way. Big love. Thank you so much, Jackie. I'm very, very grateful for your beautiful review and so glad that I can be of support to you. And don't forget that if you guys want to be the review of the week for next week, all you have to do is head on over to iTunes and leave me that five-star review right now. I would be so grateful. And without further ado, I'm so excited for you guys to hear this epic conversation and clear up a lot of the confusion. So let's bring on the amazing Brenda Davis. Brenda, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. But before we dive in, can you please tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? Oh, great question. Thanks so much for having me, Melissa. Basically, my breakfast is almost the same every day with just variations in some of the components of the breakfast. So I just love to have a breakfast bowl. And so this morning, my breakfast bowl consisted of sprouted black barley, a mix of kamut berries and lentils. So those are my sort of, I guess, the substance of my breakfast bowl. And then it had blueberries, raspberries, and peaches for my fruit. And then I always like to have some sort of yummy wet component. So I had pear cream, which is a mixture of cashews and pears. And then that bowl is topped with a seed mixture, which is chia, flax, hemp, pumpkin seeds, and Brazil nuts as well. And then I have a little bit of my dehydrated granola on top. And then I eat that with some unsweetened cashew milk. So that's my standard breakfast. That sounds so delicious. And I'm coming over. Well, I would love to have you. And I and I forgot to say, I also had a little bit of cooked rhubarb and cooked blueberries on top because I just love those as well. So I always have a sprout. I always have a legume. I always have a grain and then a bunch of fruit, something creamy and all of these toppings. Mm. It's yummy. Oh mm, my gosh. <laughs> it sounds so good. It sounds beautiful. Yes. 
Now, can you tell us your story and how you got to where you are today doing the work that you now do? Like, how did this all unfold for you? Well, it, it's, it's a bit of a story, but I, I was trained as a kind of conventional registered dietitian, uh, went to a very conventional university and all of those things. But I always had this, this interest in, I guess, a sort of global perspectives and, and uh, compassion. And I was just always interested in those things. And vegetarian was something that was, a, you know, plant-based. It was always something that I thought was intriguing and fascinating. I didn't really know it was possible because I'd never met people who ate plant-based. As I grew up, I, I lived in sort of hunting and fishing territory. But what happened to me when I was about, oh, I guess, 29 years old, this is a few years back, I'm 60 now. But, but when I was 29 years old, I was a public health nutritionist and uh, working, you know, designing public health nutrition programs. And I, one of my best friends was on his way hunting. I had been married for about 10 years at that point. And this was actually the best man at our wedding, stopped over on his way deer hunting. And it was essentially what he said to me that changed the course of my life. Because when he showed up to have coffee before going deer hunting, I said to him, I, I don't understand why you do this. I, I don't understand how you can feel good about going into the bush with a big gun and shooting a beautiful, innocent creature like a deer. And what he said back to me silenced me. He basically said, just because you don't have the guts to pull the trigger does not mean you are not responsible for the trigger being pulled every time you buy a piece of meat camouflaged in cellophane in the grocery store. And then he said, at least the animals I eat have had a life. I wonder if you can say the same for the ones that are sitting on your plate. And I had no response because I knew he was absolutely right. But after he said that to me, I vowed that I would learn more about where the food I was eating was coming from. And it took me all of about a week to decide I didn't want to participate in the system of cruelty that was associated with the animal agriculture industry today. And it was hard because I wasn't sure if I would be ousted from my profession if I went vegetarian. I mean, I'm essentially vegan, to be honest. And it was scary for me, but I decided that I needed to help people who made the same kind of choices that I was making to do it well. And so that became really the thing that grounded me in my career. I, I just, I wanted passionately to help people who wanted to make choices that were more ecologically sustainable and ethically justifiable to do so in exceptional health. And so that's been you know, the course of my career, writing these books to help guide people in the right direction. Mm, well, thank you, because there are so many people out there that aren't doing it correctly. But that goes for not just a plant-based lifestyle, any sort of diet. There's people that are not, you know, doing it at all correct, and they're doing themselves a lot more harm. Well, Melissa, I have to, I have to say something there, because 
a lot of people who do this because they're concerned about animals and uh, the lives of animals, when they do it poorly, they become exhibit number one for why everybody around them is justified in eating meat. Because basically people use them as an excuse to eat meat. Well, you know, they just say, well, look at their health. They're not doing well. So obviously humans need meat. So I think we need to set an example of great health. We need to prove that when you consume plants, you can not only do well and and retain good health, you can live exceptionally well, longer, better, brighter, faster, stronger, all of those things. Mm, Absolutely. And I've gone through my own health journey, but I've always believed that we need to eat lots of plants. So loads of fruit and loads of veggies, the things that mother nature has so beautifully given to us. And in 2010, I actually ended up in hospital because of my lifestyle and my diet. And from there, I completely changed my diet from eating. Basically at that time, I was eating anything out of a packet and just junk food. I was eating no whole foods. And now I eat the complete opposite. And at that time, it put me in hospital because it was so toxic. And at this point in my life, I'm a massive believer and advocate for living, you know, a plant-based life. I feel like everyone needs to eat more plants and more fruits and veggies. And earlier this year, I was just reminded of how powerful Mother Nature really is because I got eczema on my hands. And I first got eczema when I was a kid and I'd gone through different phases in my life where I had it and where I didn't have it. And then I would also know what flared it up. Food, some foods flared it up, stress, lifestyle being, you know, the big ones. And at the start of this year, I had this eczema on my hands and I was trying everything. You know, I was meditating more. I was doing all of the things. I eat an all organic diet. And so I decided to completely cut out all animal products just to see what happened and if that had any correlation. And my hand cleared up in a week. And, you know, now besides eczema, which I'm sure as a dietitian and clinical nutrition specialist, which you are, you probably see a lot of eczema in your practice, but what are some other common things that you see in your practice today? Well, I'd say the most common are really the diseases of lifestyle that kill 70% of the people in the developed world and now pretty much globally as well. So I just see a ton of diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, and cancers. So those are the biggies. And of course, all sorts of GI problems, and the list goes on. All of these chronic degenerative diseases that are essentially entire, almost entirely preventable. Mm, absolutely. There's a lot of focus on cancer, but the number one killer is still cardiovascular disease. Yes. But what role does a plant-based diet have in preventing cardiovascular disease? Well, you know, the beauty of all of this is it's, it's the same diet. It's the same components that prevent cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes, because essentially the drivers of these diseases are really a combination of inflammation, oxidative stress, 
in especially in the case of diabetes, but also heart disease, lipotoxicity, glycotoxicity, and also dysbiosis or a very unhealthy gut flora. And, and so just to define some of these terms, I mean, inflammation is really almost every disease you can think of. We have this low-grade chronic inflammation that is triggered by excessive consumption of unhealthy foods and an unhealthy lifestyle. And what we know about inflammation when we look at the studies is that people who are plant-based have far lower levels of inflammation because they're eating more of the foods that have anti-inflammatory components. It's the same story with oxidative stress. We have dozens of studies showing better, you know, less oxidative stress in plant-based eaters. Lipotoxicity is sort of, have you ever heard that term, Melissa? Yes. Lipotoxicity? Yep. Yeah. So it's essentially the accumulation of lipids or fats where they shouldn't be. So in non-adipose tissue, adipose tissue is where we have this sort of unlimited capacity to store fat. But when we can't handle all of the calories coming in, sometimes we end up storing excess calories as fat in places that they really shouldn't be stored, like our vital organs, our liver, our heart, our pancreas, and even in our muscles as intramyocellular lipids. And, and this can trigger, you know, insulin resistance and inflammation and elevated triglycerides and elevated blood sugars and all of these things. And then, you know, we've got uh, dysbiosis, which only 10 years ago, we had no idea how strongly it was associated with disease risk. But now we know it's associated even with the functioning of our brains, everything is dependent on a healthy gut microflora. So all of these things sort of are the drivers of, of not only heart disease, but diabetes and cancer and all of those things. Every single health expert that I've had on this podcast has said the exact same thing around the importance of our gut. And, you know, the inflammation is where it all starts. So if we can limit the inflammatory lifestyle choices, then we're really going to be doing ourselves such a benefit. But let's talk about all the centenarians around the world. What do they all have in common when it comes to their diet? Because these are the people that live the longest all around the world, all the blue zones. What do they have in common? I love studying the blue zones and I've actually looked at them very, very extensively. And, and where diet is concerned, I mean, they have all sorts of lifestyle factors like, you know, not smoking and they're strongly socially engaged and they do constant moderate physical activity and, and they're, they're very family oriented. But where diet is concerned, there's two common features that run through every single blue zone on the planet. They all eat plant-based diets and they all eat legumes. And that tells us something. Not one single blue zone is paleo or keto. They're all plant-based. Wow. Without exception. Wow. Yeah. And and I've been through all of them. I've been through all those different labels, that's for sure. There was a time in my right. life where I was very fearful because I'd been under that marketing and I'd been very fearful of legumes and beans. But you know, you just have to look at all of the blue zones around the world. And, and look what they're eating. 
Exactly. And and if you look at the longevity data, you look at meta-analyses, the one consistent thing you see over and over and over again is that meat is associated with increased risk of death and dying and legumes are associated with decreased risk of death and dying and disease as well. There was one study from 2004 that I thought was really interesting that looked just at people 70 years plus, and they found that the only indicator of longevity in that population was legume intake. And they found for every 20 grams or two-thirds of an ounce of legumes consumed, the risk of mortality was reduced 7 to 8%. I was absolutely floored because you're talking about maybe two tablespoons of legumes. This is the tiniest little serving. It's a couple of mouthfuls. And it it reduced mortality by seven to eight percent. And I thought, imagine if people actually ate a cup of these things. Wow. They'd live forever. Wow. <laughs> so and are you talking as well about animal products that are organic, grass-fed, grass-finished, hormone-free, chemical-free? Like, are you referring to those animal products as well? Because obviously, animal products that are covered in hormones, pumped with antibiotics and not raised on their natural diet are incredibly inflammatory. And I would highly recommend people stick away from that as much as possible. Like, it's just, it's insanity. But are you still referring to organic, grass-fed, grass-finished, raised on, you know, their natural diet as well? Yes. And certainly those, those products are preferable to products that are raised with added, you know, antibiotics and hormones and all of those things. But regardless... What we know is the carnitine in meat increases TMAO, which increase, which is atherogenic. We know that ground meat is, you know, uh, one of the richest sources of endotoxins. No matter where the animals are, grass-fed meat actually has a way higher carbon footprint than intensively raised animals. They all have heme iron, which is, you know, a pro-oxidant. They all contain NU5GC, which is a highly pro-inflammatory molecule. They they are very high in saturated fat. They're relatively high in cholesterol. They tend to upregulate cancer-promoting genes. All of these things, which really don't change between, you know, whether it's grass-fed meat or not. We know that animal protein tends to be harder on the kidneys, you know, especially when consumed in large quantities. The agrochemicals, a lot of the persistent organic pollutants simply move up the food chain. So even in grass-fed, organically grown animals, we still see relatively high amounts of of some of these compounds, the, you know, whether it's dioxins or PCBs or whatever, persistent organic pollutants. So there are all kinds of concerns. And as a matter of fact, are you familiar with Walter Willett? No. Who's he? So Walter Willett is probably the most, well, he's the most cited nutrition expert in the world. He's got over 1,700 original research papers, and he was the head of Harvard School of Public Health for many years and is considered the leading epidemiologist in the world. And he was asked, you know, the the very simple question, how much meat is safe to eat? And his answer was, if you step back and look at the data, 
the optimum amount of red meat you should eat or you eat should be zero. And that was based on, you know, all of the studies that he has been a part of and examined. And the evidence is really strong. I mean, it's stronger for processed meat than red meat. But, you know, processed meat is is considered a class one human carcinogen by the World Health Organization. Red meat is considered a, a class two A, I think it is, or probable human carcinogen. And so regardless, uh, there are problems with consuming meat and, you know, not to mention the, you know, the ecological footprint and, and the whole ethical argument of how these animals are raised and how they're slaughtered. And so I think as human beings, we, I think we're intelligent enough to figure out how to produce food for this human population that doesn't require the pain, suffering, and death of billions of animals every year. We're talking about 70 billion land animals. That's every year, not including anything from the sea. Then when you think about the carbon footprint involved in that processing of, of that, of the growing and processing of that number of animals, it's, it's our number one contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. So we've, we have to, if we're gonna survive on this planet as a species, We've got to be smarter about where our food is coming from. I know. And I just think as well, like, what about our children and our children's children and our children's children's children? Like, yes. are they going to get to witness the this beautiful earth that we have now? Like, the way that we're going, are they going to? Yeah, and, 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 and it's really sketchy. It's very, very frightening when we think about what our grandchildren and great-grandchildren will be facing and the water shortages and the, you know, the issues of the allotment of land for various purposes. It's very scary. I have, right now, I have one grandchild and one who's four days overdue. She should be arriving anyway. Anytime now. And I think about that. I think about that a lot. And it it's it really does concern me very, very much. A lot of people might be thinking, okay, well, where do I get my protein from? Which is a real common question, right? <laughs> and before you answer this, I want to share yeah. a story. Like something my husband is totally plant-based and he's spent a lot of time, I think it was about four weeks tracking all of his food on Chronometer, that app, which, you know, can track all of your food and tell you how much you're getting in your protein, your carbs and your fat and everything like that. And he would get to some evenings and he would check his his app and realize that just by eating plant-based protein, he had reached his maximum for that day. And that's just from like chickpea tempeh or black bean pasta and he would like, oh, okay, I don't need to have any more protein today. I've had the amount for me yeah. and my body and for what I'm doing. And this is on like a bulking diet that he was doing. So a lot of people might be thinking, okay, well, if I'm going to replace some of the animal products with plant-based proteins, am I still going to get enough protein? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's probably one of the, the things that is of least concern, but for some reason in our culture, protein has the, you know, it's got that we've got this halo on protein. We are, we are obsessed with protein. And, and if people could just understand that 
human beings need about 10 to 15 percent of their calories to come from protein. And there's almost no whole plant foods that have less than that. The only category is really fruit, which is about 1 to 10% of calories from protein. The only foods that don't have any protein are sugar and, and pure fat. Everything else, if you, we look at our legumes, they're 20 to 40% of calories from protein. If we look at our vegetables, they're 20 to 40% of calories from protein, with the exception of starchy vegetables, which is about 8 to 12%. Grains are about 8 to 17% of calories from protein. Seeds are about 12 to 20% of calories from protein. Nuts are a little bit lower, probably about 8 to, to 16 or 17 as well. But if you eat a variety of plant foods, as most vegans do or most plant-based eaters do, you're going to get about 13 to 15% of calories from protein on average. And so it's just not a huge issue. Where it becomes an issue is where you're eating so much junk that you're getting a lot of your calories from oil and sugar. So you eat soda pop and French fries, you're not going to get enough protein if that's the bulk of your diet. But if you're living on legumes and whole grains and vegetables and fruits and nuts and seeds, your protein is a non-issue. And we can't deny that plants have to be a majority of our diet. It's just like there's there's no diet out there that can argue with that. It's like we have to have that as the predominant factor in our diet. Absolutely. Most most food guides, most food guides, half the plate is plants. Is actually three quarters of the plate is plants. Half is fruits and vegetables. A quarter is is grains. And, and then you've got the protein section, which is one quarter, which it would be preferably legumes because they're the foods that are loaded with fiber and phytochemicals and antioxidants and all of those things that protect us. If anyone's listening and they are like concerned that they're not going to hit their macros, getting the chronometer is an amazing app. And I did it too. I tracked all of my food for a couple of days just to make sure I was getting enough. And I actually was like, wow, okay, I'm not getting enough fat. So I was like, okay, I'm going to have another half an avocado at lunchtime, you know, just little things like that. Like you can actually track yeah. it and see, oh, okay, well, I got to my dinner and I'm like, oh, wow. And yeah, need to increase my fat. So I'm going to have more avocado, another quarter or whatever it is. Yeah. And just, just to be really clear on the macros, I think this is really important for people to understand is your percentages of calories from macronutrients, protein, fat, and carbohydrate, matters far less than the source of those macronutrients. So if you look at the blue zones, it's really quite amazing when you look at the blue zones and their macronutrient, sort of the variability of macronutrients in those groups. What you see is you see people eating anywhere from about 8 to about 50% of calories from fat. They average about 62% of calories from carbohydrates, but it ranges from about 50 to 80. They get on average, almost all of them, about 12 to 15% of calories from, from protein, but the, the, the fat and the carbohydrate ranges are huge. It matters far less how much fat you're getting than it matters that you're getting enough essential fatty acids and that you're getting enough fat to allow for proper absorption of nutrients and phytochemicals. So it, it you know if if you're at 20% or 30%, 
or 15% even, that doesn't matter as much as the quality of the fat and that you're getting the essential fatty acids that you need. Mm, Absolutely. I have to interrupt this conversation to tell you about one of today's sponsors, Wix. Now, I believe we all have something special to share with the world. And a beautiful way to do that is via a website. And Wix makes creating your own website and you sharing your message with the world super easy. You get total creative freedom. You have infinite design possibilities, which means that you get to create your own unique yet professional masterpiece. Wix takes care of all the heavy lifting like reliable hosting to keep your website safe and secure, custom domains and mailboxes, email marketing, and more. It's super user-friendly, but so slick that people will think you hired professionals. Plus, they have just launched Wix Turbo, which means your website loads faster than ever before. And I want you to share your message with the world. So Wix and I are giving the MA Tribe 10% off when you upgrade to Wix Premium with the code MA Tribe. How cool is that? Now, let's get back to this conversation. Now, let's talk about another common question, which is around B12. A lot may argue that if this was a complete diet, we should be able to get B12. But talk to us about B12 and soil, as well as B12 and the bacteria in our bodies, because our food is so sterilized now to prevent diseases. And so we're not getting the soil and the bacteria like we used to, to get our B12. So can you talk to that? Oh, for sure. I know it's a very, very common argument of of people who are promoting animal, more animal-centered diets. And and there's no question, and I think what people who are plant-based do need to understand is plants are not reliable sources of B12 because, as you mentioned, we make sure we're getting rid of pathogenic bacteria in our food. So we make sure it's well sanitized. And in that process, we lose any B12 producing bacteria as well. You can get a little bit on mushrooms, but otherwise you get a little bit in some seaweed, but generally you can't rely on these foods as your sole sources of B12. But that doesn't mean that a plant-based diet is somehow inferior to one that contains foods with B12. Because the first 80% of the Paleolithic period, we were essentially plant-based out of necessity. We didn't know how to catch animals. And, and yet, you know, when you would pull roots out of the ground or you would drink water, those things would be contaminated with B12 producing bacteria so you would get enough. And hum- the human species has sort of evolved consuming very small amounts of B12. It's tiny. It's, you know, 2.4 micrograms is the RDA here in North America. It's a very, very tiny amount, but you need to get it reliably. And, And so basically the other thing to know is if you're over the age of 50, I'm 60 myself. So anybody over the age of 50 years, you should not rely on B12 from animal products. It's, it's not a reliable source of B12 for you. And the reason is simple. In animal products, B12 is bound to protein. In order to cleave that B12 off of the protein it's bound to, you need to be able to produce enough stomach acid and you need to produce enough enzymes to do that act of cleaving that B12 off. And probably as many as 30% of people over 50 don't do that. 
And so what our government recommends is anyone over 50 needs to rely on fortified foods or supplements for their B12. The exact same things that people eating mainly plant-based diets should rely on. Wow. So we need we need to get it, but it's not somehow miraculous that it, you know, that animal products contain B12. I mean, we actually, as, as, as animals, human animals, make a ton of B12. We make a lot of B12 in our bodies, but unfortunately, it's made mainly in the large intestine and we absorb it in the small and things don't usually go backwards. So, you know, we excrete it in our feces. And so, you know, when we grow things on night soil, which is human manure, they'll have lots of B12 in them. But we usually want to get rid of the pathogenic bacteria involved in that process. So we get rid of we get rid of that stuff. Wow, that's so interesting. I'd never heard that about being over 50 and and that's so interesting. I'll be I'll be sharing that with my in-laws and my parents. Yeah. But I take an activated B complex. Would you suggest taking something like that? I would suggest, so people, they don't have to get anything fancy. They just need to get B12. So I would say, you know, a thousand micrograms twice a week in a supplement. And the reason, like I said, we need 2.4 micrograms a day. So some people might be thinking, well, why the heck do we need a thousand? And the reason is, is that if you're taking in any more than about 500 micrograms, you absorb probably less than 1%, maybe 0.5% of what you're consuming. So you you really get very little of what you're consuming. And so you need those larger amounts. But if you do it twice a week, 1,000 micrograms or daily, you know, at least, I mean, some people would say 10 micrograms to 25 micrograms. Some experts will say higher, 100 to 250. But if you take a multi with a, with a little bit of B12, you you know possibly could get enough from that. If you eat any fortified foods, then you'll get a little extra. Most of our non-dairy milks are fortified. Our meat analogs are fortified. Nutritional yeast, many varieties are fortified. So there's lots of fortified foods that'll provide you little bits as well. But if you top that up with a thousand micrograms twice a week, if you do lots of fortified foods, probably once a week is enough. That's okay. And the type, I mean, there's big uh, controversies about should it be cyanocobalamin or methylcobalamin or should it be time release or, you know, so on and so on. And, And to be honest, at this stage in the game, what we know is cyanocobalamin is very stable it reverses B12 deficiency. If you're a smoker, uh, you know, cyanide's an issue, then you might not want to use that. You might want to use the methyl or the adenosyl or one of the other forms. But generally, it's better to do something than to do nothing. And so, you know, cyano is the cheapest, it's the most stable, and it's a fine choice for the average person. But if you have like MTHFR, polymorphism or something like that, you may want to choose the, the methylcobalamin. Yes. I, my husband and I both have the MTHFR. Yeah. So yeah, we've got that one, yeah. but that's really, that's really interesting. And I want to talk a little bit about, you've mentioned the gut a few times. How does a plant-based diet help with gut health? Obviously the diversity of plants that you eat is going to be an indicator of your health because different plants feed and have different bacteria. And one thing that my husband and I have started doing every Sunday when we go to our organic farmer's market, we try not to get any of the same fruit or vegetables that we got the week before so that we're constantly mixing it up and constantly getting different colors and different bacteria and all sorts of things. 
Yeah. And candida and SIBO plague so many people. So what's going on there and how can eating more plants help with our gut health? Well, I think what people need to understand is that there, there's what we call probiotics and prebiotics. And probiotics are the, the bacteria themselves. So you might eat some fermented foods or some sort of yogurts, like even a non-dairy yogurt, some sort of kombucha tea or whatever it is that contain these active microorganisms, which can help populate your gut with a more diversity of microbiota. But then there's also the prebiotics and prebiotics are basically the the components in food that feed your bacteria. And you want to feed the good bacteria. And so where are prebiotics? Well, prebiotics are essentially the fibers that we don't digest and absorb that make it to the large intestine that, that are food for your bacteria. And so when you eat a diet that's mainly meat and dairy or, you know, that's uh, got a lot of processed foods and meat and dairy, for example, you're not feeding your gut bacteria. There's hardly any prebiotics there. You need that. You're very wise, Melissa, to be choosing the, you know, wide variety of plants and, and different types of grains, different types of vegetables and fruits, different types of legumes to provide that mix of prebiotics that will be most nourishing for that community of microorganisms in your gut. And that's extremely important to be getting that. And so when people eat a lot of meat, for example, you're feeding, you're, you know, you think about the carnitine and, and, and the, the choline that can feed the bacteria that produce TMA that gets converted to TMAO. These are not the friendly bacteria we want to be feeding. <laughs> so it's, it's just plant-based diets. The studies are, we just see over and over again. There was a study in Brazil not too long ago that showed that essentially compared people eating plant-based diets versus people eating omnivorous diets. And the people eating plant-based diets had not surprisingly, a way healthier gut microflora. And this is very consistent in studies. The diversity and the and 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 the health of the gut is is really much, much more robust in someone who's eating that variety of plants. Mm. And what about saturated fat? Many people believe that you must have lots of saturated fat in your diet. What does the real evidence show when it comes to our health? Well, you know, that whole thinking is just beyond ridiculous as far as I'm concerned. First of all, we saturated fat is not an essential nutrient because we make it. We make it from all sorts of things that we eat. And, and so, of course, you know, there's some saturated fat that is needed in the body, but we make it. We like we make cholesterol. We make a thousand milligrams of cholesterol a day. We make plenty of saturated fat. And, and so we don't need to consume any, but you can't help but consume some. Even a, even a person on a hundred percent plant-based, super healthy diet will be consuming probably 4% of their calories from saturated fat. That compares to about 12% from people who are eating meat, 11 or 12%. So, and people who are eating paleo or, or uh, you know, keto, it's much higher than that. On a paleo diet, it's probably around 20% of calories from saturated fat. Well, what we know is saturated fat intake increases LDL cholesterol levels. 
and LDL cholesterol levels are associated with increased risk of heart disease. And, you know, there were a couple of studies, well, there was a couple of studies in one in 2014 that suggested that saturated fat was not associated with heart disease risk. But that study had so many flaws. And in fact, it you know, one of the big flaws was it, it compared people in like populations consuming. So you'd, cons- you'd compare people in North America who consume 10% versus 12% saturated fat. You'd, you'd compare people in Japan who consume 4 versus 5% saturated fat. And, and it would show that while their differences, there, they didn't see big differences in their, in their rates of death or, or heart disease. But if you compare the people from Japan with the people from North America, you saw big differences because the differences in saturated fat intake were quite huge. The one study that actually was included that did show huge differences was Epic Oxford. And Epic Oxford, you know, the vegans are consuming maybe five, six percent of calories from saturated fat. The meat eaters around 11, 12 percent. And the differences in heart disease rates were huge. So the whole, you know, I remember when the Chowdhury study came out, I actually contacted one of the, the authors of that study to, to ask them if they really believed that this changes anything. And, and the researcher I talked to actually said that, um, that when they first did this study, the study showed about a 19% increased risk with highest uh, saturated fat intakes. But then the study was reworked because it, it didn't show anything new until it showed something new, which was saturated fat was not an issue. And she said, actually, the studies over 50 years, um, the clinical research studies have been so powerful that that, that, that study didn't, didn't change anything in terms of what people should be doing, which is reducing their intake of saturated fat. And if you look at the president's report on fats, it's a very clear, consistent evidence that saturated fats increase risk of heart disease. The, the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association's joint papers for physicians on how to deal with reducing risk of, of, of heart disease uh, suggest not more than 5 to 6% of calories from saturated fat. Well, the only, the only dietary category that comes anywhere close is plant-based, people eating plant-based diets. That's it. That's where we are is about 5 to 6%. Wow. Maybe we can link in the show notes to some of those studies as well. Oh, absolutely. So what about iron? What about, you know, iron? Because that's another thing that a lot of people question. Yeah. Will I become iron deficient? So how can we make sure that if we are eating a predominantly plant-based diet or a complete plant-based diet, that we're still getting enough iron? And this is really important as well for, especially when women are pregnant. Yes. Well, the shock of all shocks is if you look at at dietary categories and iron intake from Epic Oxford or from the Adventist Health Study too, the people that eat the most iron are vegans. Wow. Uh, They eat more iron than omnivores. So so the the numbers will be, you know, 22 milligrams for for the vegans, 20 or 18 to 20 for the meat eaters, you know, so on. And and so they, they, they consistently have the highest intakes of iron. The, the issue is, is that, is that the iron from plants is not as absorbable as the iron from meat. The iron from meat is heme, is, well, not about 40% of it is heme iron, about 60% is non-heme. But, but so, so the iron from meat, part of it is this heme iron that's very rapidly absorbed. 
The problem with heme iron is it's a pro-oxidant and it is strongly linked to oxidative stress. So it actually, there, there's a, there are a lot of experts that believe that excluding heme iron is actually an advantage in, in terms of disease risk because it can act as a, as a pro, pro-inflammatory and an oxidant. And so getting enough iron from a plant-based diet is less of an issue than what people think, but we need to maximize the absorption of that iron. Yeah, so what what we want to do to do that is number one, we want to make sure we're getting enough iron, which means you're not just eating junk food, you're eating lots of legumes, nuts and seeds, and even whole grains are re- can be a reasonable source of, of iron. Then you want to be consuming enough vitamin C rich foods. And so we're thinking about, you know, these organic acids, including vitamin C, that actually can enhance the absorption of non-heme iron by two, three, four, five, six times. And so when you're eating a meal that's rich in legumes, you want to have some red peppers there, some broccoli or some other foods that will help to increase the absorption of that iron. And then you also need to be aware of the inhibitors of iron absorption. And that the main inhibitor, there are a few inhibitors, but the main two are phytates. And phytates are concentrated in wheat bran. And so you don't want to be sprinkling bran on your food. Like a lot of people sprinkle bran on their breakfast cereal and they put bran in their loaves and patties. And this is not a good thing to do if you're on a plant-based diet because you will tremendously inhibit the absorption of iron and zinc and other minerals in that in those plant foods. So in having whole grain products is not an issue, but just don't extract the brand from those and 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 then be sprinkling it on your food. So that's one thing to, to consider. And the other thing is these polyphenolic compounds like tannins in tea. If you're drinking tea and you have any issues of of you know low iron levels, you want to be making sure you separate that tea from your meals. So you'll be having your, your tea an hour before your meals or an hour or two after your meals rather than drinking it with your meal. What about squeezing lemon juice on your greens? Well, it's a definite reasonable thing to do. Uh, it helps in terms of oxalic acid, but it also helps in terms of the vitamin C it contains. So that will help to enhance the absorption and also helps you to reduce your your use of salt because when you use lemon on things, it it just gives this burst of flavor and you don't need as much salt poured on your food to make it taste good. So I think it's a great idea. Mm, Yes. Now, what about pregnancy and breastfeeding on a plant-based diet? Well, you know, it's just so, I think it's fascinating. Now in pregnancy, you really do have higher requirements for many nutrients. And so you need to be a little more diligent about eating your legumes and tofu and and those kinds of foods that are more concentrated sources of protein. You, You have to be absolutely certain you have a reliable source of B12 and vitamin D. And you want to make sure you're getting enough iron. And generally, you're going to be taking a prenatal supplement, which which will include that. And then you may continue to use that during breastfeeding as well. But with breastfeeding, the one a huge advantage to being plant-based is there was a study done in the late 80s that was absolutely fascinating looking at 
environmental contaminants in breast milk. And this is an issue because, you know, persistent organic pollutants move up the food chain. Breast milk is very high on the food chain. And so we tend to concentrate these com compounds. One of the one of the surefire ways of excreting toxins from your body is to breastfeed. You give them to your baby. And so, but when you're on a plant-based diet, you're consuming foods lower on the food chain. So your levels in breast milk are a fraction of what they are in meat eaters. So this study was done on the farm where they were eating mainly organic plants. They were all vegans. And, and they found that most of the, the tests looking at the levels of persistent organic pollutants were actually negligible in the, uh, in, in, in the vegans. And they were really quite high in the omnivores they were comparing them to. So that gives you a huge advantage when you're breastfeeding your child. And you talk a lot about this in your books as well, which I highly recommend. We yes. can link to those in the show notes. But what Thank would you. you say for someone who, I mean, breast milk is so nutrient dense, right? And for someone listening right. who may not be able to breastfeed, what is the next best option? Because I was chatting to someone about this and they said to me that you can get milk from another mother, but I don't necessarily agree with that in, because I feel like what if that mother is, is, is a very unhealthy, eating very unhealthy diet because what she eats is making that milk. So what, what are the options? Like, what are the options? You know, to be to be perfectly frank, that is the best option. Uh, if you can't breastfeed yourself, I mean, obviously you'd want it to be a healthy mother, <laughs> but the breast milk of human beings will always be better for human babies than the milk of anything else. So, so if if you can't use your own, using someone else's would be the next best option. Then you know, barring that, if you're vegan and you don't want to use the milk of any other species, like a cow or a, you know, a goat or whatever, then you're going to be looking at plant-based milks. And, and, and the one cardinal rule is never, ever make your own uh, infant formula. This is a formula for disaster. And, and the, the, the children we've seen die and become, you know, grossly malnourished who are born to vegan parents are vegan parents who make their own formula and don't know what they're doing. And uh, these have been very, very sad stories. So I would highly recommend against that. If you're not able to breastfeed and not able to use human milk for your infant, then what you would need to use is a commercial infant formula. So are you saying a commercial vegan organic formula or, I mean, do they even exist? They don't, as far as I know, but there are close. There are some that are really close. The only non-vegan component at this stage in the game is uh, vitamin D3 from lanolin. And there is no excuse for them not to be using D3 from lichen, which is an algae-based D3, which is widely available. But the problem is, is the demand hasn't been great enough. And so people who are vegan who want a completely vegan formula need to be after these companies to be producing 
you know, a completely vegan formula, but they're clo- it's close enough. You have to do the best you can with what's available. Mm, absolutely. An organic, close to vegan formula would be a very reasonable mm, option. Oh, it's, it's a shame that there's not more available out there for people in that situation because I know there's a lot of formulas, but they're full of crap, high fructose corn syrup, and it's just crazy. You know what? It's just sad. And, and so that's why I think people who are vegan tend to do everything they can to, to breastfeed. <laughs> and, but there are some cases where people can't. And uh, for whatever reason, illness, they have to take medications, whatever it is, that they can't, then they just have to do the next best thing. And you remember that that a child only needs that for about a year, and then you can move on and and be provide. I mean, by six months, you can provide a you know a pretty nice range of really healthy organic plant foods to supplement that formula that you're using. Mm. And if someone can obviously continue breastfeeding longer than that year, you would suggest that. Oh, absolutely. As long as possible. And so human, natural human weaning is two to four years. So if you can go between that two to four year period, it's perfect. Because the thing you have to remember is, is that while you're breastfeeding, you're providing your child with long chain omega-3 fatty acids, with immune protection, with, you know, just the perfect mix of micro and macronutrients that, that are so valuable to that child. And I know in our culture, we've made it seem almost perverse to be nursing a child who's, you know, two, three, four years old. But but in, throughout human history, that that was normal, natural human weaning time was two to four years. So we need to, to look at it in a very positive light because for a child, it's invaluable. Do you know what I think is just so miraculous is that I love how a mother's breast milk will change depending on what the child needs. So if the child gets a little bit run down or has a fever, the breast milk will change to give it that nutrients that it needs. Like, isn't that just amazing? It, it is a miracle. And it is one that we really need to respect and, and, and recognize. It is incredible how breast milk changes with the needs of the child, with the age of the child, with the all of those things. It's it's a really quite remarkable. <laughs> mm, it's it's magic. Now for someone listening who might want to add more plants into their diet, where can they start? I would just start very simply. I mean, even if you're, you know, eating meat and poultry and fish and all of those things, just start by adding more more plants. So trying to increase your intake of vegetables by one or two extra vegetables a day, by, by adding, making sure every single meal you eat contains fruits and vegetables. And then start adding, looking at, you know, adding one serving of legumes a day. At some point, it could just be hummus with veggies for veggies and dip at the beginning. Mm. And then, you know, adding a few legumes to a salad, putting a few chickpeas on your salad, adding some legumes into a soup or stew and start slowly that way. And what you'll find eventually is that these healthy plant foods start to crowd out the other foods. And so slowly learning to incorporate them. And, and for some people, like, for example, my husband, he's 
he, he he's not as keen on eating as I am. <laughs> and, and so I find every morning I just, I make him a green smoothie with maybe six cups of dark green leafy vegetables in, in a, you know, and then, and then hemp seeds and some soft tofu. And I put peas, frozen peas into the, into the smoothie as well. So it's just loaded with protein. It's loaded with veggies whiz it up and then he's got two containers of that in the fridge just two glass containers and he can just sip on it throughout the day when he doesn't feel like eating he just feels like drinking something and it works beautifully so there are different ways for different people i would way sooner eat a you know a huge jumbo salad and be eating for an hour and be happy as can be so it just depends on the individual but there are ways of sneaking these things in so you barely even notice them Mm, absolutely. And Susie Cameron, who is James Cameron, the director, his yes, wife, yes. she started an, an organization called One Meal a Day, where she's encouraging people to just eat one plant-based meal a day, like completely plant-based. And yes. That's great. Inspiring them to, you know, at least, you know, maybe you start with your breakfast and you just, you know, you have no animal products in your breakfast because her and her husband, James Cameron, are plant-based. That's wonderful. Yeah, they're just massive advocates for it. And, you know, it's, there's no denying, I, I wanted, I would like to see the scientific studies that proves eating plants is unhealthy. And I don't think there is any because it's just so beneficial. It's, it's, it's just extraordinary. If you look, there, there are basically three big studies that have compared people who eat, who, who actually live similar health conscious lifestyles, where they exercise the same amount, they smoke the same amount, drink the same amount, and so on, but they eat differently. And in, in these, there are three, Epic Oxford, the Adventist Health Study 2, and the Taiwanese Health Study. And in every single one of these studies, whether we're comparing cardiovascular disease or hypertension or diabetes or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or cancer or kidney disease or, or diverticular disease or cataracts, all of these things have been looked, looked at. And consistently, the vegans tend to do best, the lacto-ovo-vegetarians second best, and the omnivores are in last place consistently in terms of disease risk for all of these things. And in some cases, it's just remarkable the difference. Like diverticular disease is 72% lower among vegans, 27% lower among lacto vegetarians in Epic Oxford. Kidney disease is less than half in, in vegetarians and vegans combined compared to omnivores. Cataracts is 40% lower in vegans, 30% lower in lacto vegetarians. Diabetes is like 62% lower in vegans, 38% lower in lacto vegetarians. Hypertension, 75% lower in vegans, 55% lower in lacto vegetarians compared to similar health-conscious non-vegetarians. And uh, the, the, the evidence is really quite strong. I have to interrupt this conversation to tell you about one of today's podcast sponsors, Zola. Planning your wedding doesn't have to be stressful. Mine sure wasn't. Actually, mine was the complete opposite. It was blissful. And Zola is reinventing the wedding planning and registry experience to take the stress out of planning your wedding. You can get a free wedding website and registry by heading to zola.com forward slash MA tribe. It's easy and takes minutes to set up and customize your site. 
There are hundreds of designs to choose from, all with matching invitations, making it super easy to manage everything in one place. You can even add your registry to your site so it's all in one convenient place for your guests. So to get your free wedding website and registry, head to zola.com forward slash matribe. That's zola.com forward slash matribe. Now let's get back to the conversation. Something that really got me on eating more plants, because I didn't really, I grew up in a household where it was like meat and three veg, and we ate the same three veg every night. It was carrots, broccoli, and peas, or beans, (laughs) or something like that. And we literally, like, I never had sweet potato as a child. Wow. I missed out. I was missing out, wasn't I? Yeah. And now I'm just like obsessed with sweet potato, I think, because I didn't have it. Like, we just had this very, only these three veggies that we kind of rotated. And so I didn't really grow up in a household where I was taught this information. And nor nor did I and nor did most people. Yeah. Yeah. But something that really did kind of get me on my path was I watched a lot of documentaries. I watched Forks Over Knives, Cowspiracy, Hungry for Change, Food Matters. Earthlings, there's all these amazing documentaries that can really help educate yourself. Because what I want to do is I want to present all of the information to everyone listening. I want to present, you know, everything. And then you make the best decision for you. Because if you don't know, you don't know. But once you then have the knowledge and the information, then you can make the the best and the truest decision for you. So please educate yourselves by watching these documentaries. And if there's one thing that you can watch that really hit home for me was, it's called The Best Speech Ever. It is a powerful, I think it's about an hour and a bit. It is not called The Best Speech Ever for no reason. It is so powerful. And I really want to encourage everybody to just get the information and then you can make the best decision for you. No judgment. There's no judgment here. It's just, I want everybody to have all of the information so that they know. That's, you know, something that I feel really passionate about. Agreed. (laughs) So I want to shift gears now. If you had a magic wand, let's pretend you have a magic wand, and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every single high school around the world. Now, besides all of your books, let's pretend they're already in the curriculum. What is one other book that you would choose? Wow, that's a great question. There's so many good ones. I I think I would probably, I think I'd probably choose one of Joel Furman's. And, and maybe the one that he did for children. Awesome. Okay. I want to hear a little bit more about you. What does your morning routine look like? I love hearing about how people prime themselves for the day and how they set themselves up for a successful day. So can you talk us through your morning routine and, and how your day unfolds? Oh, sure. I, uh, I'm an early riser. I'm sort of early to bed, early to rise kind of person. So I'm, I'm up by six or earlier quite often. And my days are a little different depending on the day, but I do tend to like to get exercise uh, first thing. And so I, I often will go for a run or I'll go to the gym and do a class or two. And I, I love it. I love physical fitness. And so I, 
I do uh, running, rollerblading, biking, cross-country skiing in the wintertime. I do yoga and I do, today I did a spin class and then a bunch of weights afterwards. So I do weight training and all of those kinds of things. And then I have breakfast and uh, you heard about my breakfast already. So, and then I get to work and do, um, you know, I'm usually at the computer a lot of the, of the morning. So, and, and I just spend a lot of time in the kitchen too. I, I really do make everything from scratch. We don't really eat uh, any processed foods at all. So everything from our, you know, breakfast cereals to our patties and soups and everything else is all is all done from scratch. I do a lot of dehydrating as well, making crackers in the dehydrator and granola and things like that too. Yum. Yes, we're the same. We make everything from scratch. We try and eat as whole food as we possibly can. And it's just so delicious. Oh, it's so good. Once your palate adjusts to the taste of of whole foods, anything else just tastes a little bit disgusting. Actually, yesterday, where was I? I was shopping and they were giving out little samples of some sort of a Dwala smoothie. And I took a sip and it was so disgusting to me because it was so sweet. I couldn't drink it at all. It was just, I wanted to spit it out. Your palate adjusts to things that are less sweet, less salty, and you appreciate the flavors of whole foods so much. It's, it's interesting because other things become non-food to you after mm. you you get used to the taste of real food. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're getting it, you know, from your farmer's market and you've chatted to the farmers, yeah. it's just such a beautiful experience. And oh, yeah, I, I, I love, I love eating. I love it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> okay. I've got three rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? You bet. Okay. What is one thing that we can all do today to improve our health? I, I would say eat more vegetables. Yes. Uh, just eat more vegetables. Yeah. What's one thing that we can do today for our wealth? So more abundance in all areas of our life. Uh, be kind. Uh, just be as kind and generous as you can to other people. Be compassionate. But kindness is something we, I think we don't think about often enough. In every little thing we do, just a smile, just, just, putting yourself in someone else's shoes and doing what you can for them and making that part of, of how you live every day. You'll not only make a difference in the lives of everyone around you, but you'll make such a difference in your own life because you'll feel so much better about the life you're living. Your, your life will be feel, feel so much more meaningful. Absolutely. One thing that I love doing is finding little ways throughout my day where I can just do some random act of kindness for whether it's someone I know or a complete stranger. Like I almost like play this little game with myself. Like what can I do? Or, you know, even, even just sending a simple text message or paying for someone's juice at the cafe or there's so many little things that you can do that can really just make such an impact in someone's life and day, even offering a smile or saying good morning on your morning walk just goes such a long way. Yes. And another thing that I think is really fun is to share, you know, share food 
And so if you, you know, bring, you make a batch of cookies or a batch of kale chips or whatever it is to bring it to your work to, to share and, and people just appreciate it so much and they learn how wonderful whole plant foods can actually be as well. That's if the cookies get out of your kitchen, like I don't make it out of my kitchen. <laughs> but yeah, it's so, it's so beautiful doing that. That's for sure. And the last one is, what is one thing that we can do for more love in our life? Oh, just, I, I think one thing that we can do is just love the people that are around us more and let them know how much we love them. Don't let a day go by that you don't tell the people you love that you love them. And the other thing to me is to, to take the time. I'll just give you a little example. My father-in-law died a few years back. and. I remember when he died, I said to my husband, we, we need to phone your mom every day from now on. And he said, every day? And I said, yes, every day, because her evenings were with her husband and they will be really long when it gets dark at four o'clock and she goes to bed at 11. It'll be the highlight of her evening to receive our phone call and it will make such a difference in her life. And I can't tell you how much She's thanked us for that. It's just, she said, it just makes such a difference in her life. Mm. And so those little things, it doesn't take us a lot of time, but it's just showing love and, and tell, and we, every day we tell her how much we love her. And I, I think those things don't have to take a lot of time, but they can make such a difference in the lives of the people that we love. Mm. So simple and so easy to do. and. It, you know, it doesn't have to take a lot of time, but look at the impact that that had on her. I remember in yeah. my early 20s, my dad, and he still does this and bless him. I love him so much. He calls me every day. And I, I remember in my early 20s, I was going through a pretty hard time at that this time in my life. And yeah. I remember saying to my dad, like, why are you, why do you, call? like, nothing's changed, dad. Like, I'm still, like, He'll be like, how? And I'm like, nothing's changed since yesterday morning when you called me. <laughs> and he said something to me that's changed my life. He said to me, all I want is to hear your voice. And, oh. and that makes my day. And oh, he's so beautiful. And from that moment, I was like, wow, that just hit me in the heart. This little random act of me just picking up the phone and saying, hey, dad. And honestly, sometimes our conversations last two minutes and sometimes they're they're longer but he did that with his mom and she passed away last year and that you know broke his heart and she was 95 and you know I just realized that me just picking up the phone and chatting to my dad for a few minutes makes his entire day like it literally makes his day it does it does and my brother and I both have done that with our parents as long as I can remember. We've called them every morning, every single morning for as long as I can remember, probably since we were in our late teens and moved away from home. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's really beautiful. Yeah. Brenda. And I'll tell you, boy, do they know it if you don't call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you cop it. 
<laughs> no, that's so beautiful. Oh, yeah. Now, is there anything yeah. else that you want to share? I think I feel like we've covered so much, but is there anything that you wanted to share that I didn't ask you about or any last parting words of wisdom? Well, you know what? Can I end with a little a little story? Yes, please. I would love to share the experience of uh, a very, very dear friend of mine now who started out as a client and became a, a friend. And, and this, this fellow at 36 years of age was diagnosed with cancer. And he was a food and wine aficionado. I mean, he was, his favorite pastime was ordering the biggest steak on the, in the fanciest restaurant in town and ordering the, you know, $500 bottle of wine. Uh, that was how he lived his life. And uh, he he developed cancer and decided when he developed cancer, because there was not much they could do for him, it was salivary gland cancer. And he decided that he was going to do whatever he could personally to give himself the best chance he could of survival. And he ended up becoming a plant-based diet devotee. And, and I became his dietitian and Michael Clapper became his doctor. And together, we helped him get his cancer into remission. But the real story here is what happened to his family, because his whole entire family, his brother and his brother's wife and his parents and everybody said, whatever diet you're doing, we love you so much. We're doing it with you so we can always eat as a family. And, and the story here is really about his father, because his father had been given two years to live. He had type 2 diabetes. He had just had a major heart attack. He had hypertension, high cholesterol, peripheral artery disease. Where he was going into renal failure. He had recurring gout. He had cataracts. He had everything. And he really was, his days were numbered. And within less than a year, being on a whole food plant-based diet, his father, whose name was Carlos. Oh, and I should say, before I tell you what happened to him, he was told all of these diseases were progressive and irreversible, and he was being treated with 17 pills and 40 units of insulin a day. Wow. Within a, within a year on a whole food plant-based diet, he was on zero pills and zero insulin. None. Whoa. Zero. Every single one of his diseases reversed. He got his fasting glucose down to normal, his A1C to 5.1, his blood pressure to 115 over 70 without any medication. They couldn't get it down to that on two medications. He, they did PET scans. His arteries opened up without any surgery. His peripheral artery disease disappeared. His kidney function normalized. He didn't get one single further recurrence of gout. His cataract stopped growing. They actually did PET scans to look at his heart function. And in 2005, his heart was so bad, his ejection fraction was reduced. He had, he had a serious infarct that caused you know, ischemia to much of his heart. In 2017, after starting this diet, normal heart function, normal ejection fraction, normal everything. And the point I want to leave listeners with is this is what is possible. You know, not everyone is willing to make the kind of more drastic lifestyle changes that are required to get that kind of reversal. But I really believe that everyone has a right to know that these kinds of lifestyle changes are safe and they're highly effective and they're doable. So it, it really is a choice. And if you think 
for a second that you can't do it, think again, because there is a support system out there that is so powerful that can help you do it. And, and I know socially it can be challenging, but believe me, your family wants you to survive. And in most cases, they'd be willing to do just about anything to help you. Mm. And so, so just believe, just believe that you have everything inside of you that it takes to do this. And you really can, there, you have a, a choice to make about the course of your disease. And in most cases, lifestyle-induced diseases are reversible with lifestyle changes. And so I just want people to have that hope that, that there really is an answer for you. And there is support for you as well. Mm, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I'm so happy for that guy. And there's so many stories like that. So thank you for sharing. We've all got to eat more plants, that's for sure. Now, okay. I have one more question before we go. I'm a massive believer in service, and I want to know what I personally can do and what the listeners can do to serve you today. You give so much to so many people, and we want to know how we can serve you. Oh, that's so lovely. Well, you know, certainly my books, I've put my heart and soul into. The last two books that I wrote are the Kick Diabetes Cookbook and Kick Diabetes Essentials, which will be out in August. And so these are books that, that just guide people through that process of revamping your diet. And it's wonderful for people with diabetes or people with heart disease or any other lifestyle-induced diseases, just full of practical information that will help you with the transition that we talked about. And also, if you're thinking of shifting towards plant-based and becoming vegan and, and the Comprehensive or Express Editions are, are guidebooks that answer all of the questions you have about nutrients as well. And then I have a website, which is brendadavisrd.com, which has a number of my presentations and handouts and so forth and some recipes that, that may be of, of interest as well. Mm, your books are very, very comprehensive. So I would highly recommend checking them out and we'll link to them in the show notes. But I just wanted to thank you again so much, Brenda, for not only your time today and sharing all of your wisdom with us, but for all the work that you do in the world and for just sharing so openly and honestly. We are so grateful to have you and to have you out there blazing the trail for the plants. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for what you're doing, Melissa. You're doing an amazing job and I'm grateful for you. Thank you so much. Wasn't that awesome? So much juicy, epic information. I hope you guys were taking notes. But if not, you can head to the show notes. I got so much out of this episode, so many great reminders, so many little tips and tricks. And if you did too, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review in iTunes or on your podcast app, because that means that I can keep getting these epic humans on the show for you and that we can keep inspiring and educating even more people together. And it also means that you could be the review of the week for next week. So head on over to iTunes and leave that review right now. And don't forget, to come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me your top key takeaways from Brenda's episode. 
I absolutely love reading them all. They're awesome. So please keep sharing them with me each week. And for everything that we mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and you're going to want to do that. So head over to melissaambrosini.com forward slash 221. And you can also listen to all my other episodes there too. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest and the happiest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock. Well done. Give yourself a little pat on the back. You're amazing. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please be an angel and share it with them right now. I think every single human being on this planet could benefit from eating more fruits and vegetables and plants. So I think everyone can benefit from this episode. So please share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is definitely liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.